Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to Sports Medicine On Tap. I'm Jason Kopeck. We have a fantastic crowd down here at Neck of the Woods Brewing Company, located inside the beautiful Total Turf Complex, South Jersey's premier sports and entertainment complex. I got Dr. Frey with me. Doc, how you doing? I'm doing great, Jason. We got a great topic tonight. Uh, who do you got with us? We have our second return guest. Welcome back, Dr. Brad Bernardini. Thanks. Happy to be here, guys. Dr. Bernardini, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we have a great topic tonight, talking about ACL injuries. And I, I remember when we were doing the, uh, you know, the, the rough planning of this podcast, and you know, we had initially said that, uh, you know, we had certain topics lined up, and you know, I think ACL injuries was right at the uh, the beginning of it. Always is. And I was going to turn it over to either one of you guys. Why is ACL injuries always the forefront of everything in sports medicine? You know, my take on it is that I think that ACL injuries are kind of like the crux of sports medicine within orthopedics. Um, there's a, there are a lot of subtleties to it. Um, I think arthroscopy, shoulder scopes, um, rotator cuff repairs, and, you know, knee scopes, partial meniscectomies, fall into that category of, of standard orthopedics. And don't get me wrong, a lot of general orthopedic surgeons can do an ACL reconstruction, but typically, typically, you, lots of times you want that sports medicine specialized orthopedic surgeon who does it. And it's been so well studied and there's so many details on it and there are so many controversies and subtleties to it that I think it becomes kind of the crux of every single like sports conversation. Dr. Yeah, Rudy, yeah, your I, take I think, on that. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of the marquee sports injury, right? It's, it gets the most press time. You know, when you see a high-level athlete that gets knocked out from ACL injury, it's it's a fairly common injury. Yeah. Um, you know, you see it happen to people in the peak of their performance and their peak of their their careers. And uh, and we're good at fixing it. Yeah, and we're good at fixing it. I, I think there's probably uh, some things we can get a little bit better at. If you look at the uh, literature that's published in orthopedics, I think uh, ACL is probably the highest number of published studies um, out there. So, I mean, it's, it's obviously gained interest from a lot of people. So tonight's episode really stems from, uh, you know, two recent ACL tears in, in professional sports. Uh, one with a local connection, Dario Sarge. Uh, we all remember him from the Sixers. Um, he was a big part of the process at one point. Right. Um, he was drafted in 2014, didn't make his debut with the Sixers till 2016. Um, and, you know, we thought he was going to be a big piece moving forward. You know, unfortunately, you know, he was a, a, one of the pieces that was moved in the Jimmy Butler trade. Um, but on July 6th, he tears his ACL while playing for the Phoenix Suns. Game one of the NBA Finals, you know, devastating for him. Um, I think that team has a good shot of winning it. And, you know, he's sure. not going to be there for, you know, for the end of it. And then secondly, on, on, a, on a broader scope, uh, Ronald Acuna Jr. of the Atlanta Braves, and obviously just one of the major superstars of baseball right now, young and up and coming, uh, a Stunned. devastating blow to you know any baseball purist, any Atlanta Braves fan, or anybody just loves the game. But you know, two guys that are obviously out for the rest of the season. Um, who wants to start us off here? This is going to be our first episode on the ACL. You know, we haven't given much background. We had Dr. Bernardini on, I think, our first episode when we talked about Joel Embiid, knee injury, but we didn't touch on the ACL. Yeah. Who wants to give us the background? Well, before we get into the details of the ACL, I think Dario was a guy that was really, really well-liked in this town, which is doesn't happen often, right? Like, <laughs> he's a pure, one of these like high-effort, high-energy guys. Yeah. And... 
you know, played pretty well. And, and that seems to get really respected in the city. The guys who seem to give it their all. Yeah. And it is, it's, yeah. It seemed like a great teammate. Right. You know? Right. One um, of those guys. Yeah. I think it was one of those where there, you thought he was the right fit for the process moving forward. Yeah. Or not, but you never really had anything negative to say about him personally. Right, you know, that, exactly. I think that's, it, it's yeah. crushing to see. Under know? the radar, humble, yeah. hard worker. Definitely. Right. That's, that's, yeah. that's a good thing. You know, one of the interesting things about these stories is, uh, you know, I, I don't know when the last time you saw a baseball ACL injury. Um, I mean, it happens. But it happens. Yeah, but yeah. less yeah. frequently pretty, pretty than a lot of other sports. And yeah. So this, I think, is uh, kind of an interesting injury. We can talk about, as we get into the mechanism, mechanism and yeah. whatnot, we can talk yeah. about that. You know, this definitely happens in, in basketball. Yeah happens in soccer a ton you know cutting pivoting twisting sports with a, a lot of dynamic movement um give us a little bit yeah. of background about the acl kind of the details what it does and and and, and uh and yeah, the mechanism. so yeah so for you know for people that aren't really sure what the acl is uh the acl is a ligament and a ligament is what basically attaches two bones together so you know one of the simple analogies we use in the office is it's like a rope that holds two boards together and you know those boards being the two bones that uh, make up your knee and uh, what the ACL does it has two main functions it helps to prevent a straight translation of the shin bone on the on the thigh bone and it also helps to prevent uh, a rotation of the shin bone on the thigh bone so if we think of it as having you know from our perspective we think of it as having two bundles or two functional parts and each one of those parts is critical. Um, very often when it gets injured, it tears completely, but sometimes it'll tear a single bundle and you'll have a loss of one of those functions. Um, it, it's it's devastating injury in that they don't heal. So, you know, one of the things that happens as they as they go through their injury, they the, the fibers stretch to the point where they can't hold on anymore and then they tear. Uh, and that has implications for how we fix it because you can't just um, generally f repair those edges back together, although there's some people doing that. And we'll, controversy, Controversy, right? we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, but generally, you know, we think of this being an injury in a young, active population that needs to be fixed. Yeah, yeah. How do these injuries occur? Uh, so 90% of them are non-contact mm -hmm. injuries. So, you know, very often the athletes by themselves and they end up in a position where the stress applied to the knee can't be absorbed by the body mm -hmm. and it puts that stress on this ligament structure and we know from studies that the ligament has an ability to kind of sustain a certain amount of pressure or force before it, it lets go yeah. and very often uh, the forces that are applied to a knee are higher than what the ACL could sustain but the body's ability to absorb force through muscular absorption and good body position and some of the things that we know we can help uh, with prevention programs, sometimes the position is just not optimal for that. And you're a little off balance and you're a little twisted to one side, the knee dips in a little bit. We can talk about there's something called right. a provocative position where you end up getting into a, a, a bad situation. Your body can no longer absorb the force. Mm -hmm. So all that force gets transmitted to the ligament and then it pops. And both of these were non-contact injuries, right? Yeah, we saw yeah. the video for both. Yeah, and it's surprising that the number is that high, right? That, yeah. that, that it's a non-contact pivoting injury usually. You know, I think when most people think about ACL tear, they think, you know, some guy's getting tackled and someone comes crushing across his knee. And, and, and don't get me wrong, that is the, the, the mechanism occasionally, but more often than not, um, and number, like, like Brad said, being, you know, close to uh, somewhere between 70 and 90%. 
It's a guy who is going to cut or pivot or lands a little bit wrong. Uh, his knee collapses into a little bit of a valgus position, just an incorrect position. It puts him in a susceptible position and it's more stress across the ligament than the ligament can tolerate and it goes. Yeah, and so you, you made an interesting comment. We're, we're talking about two male athletes. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's, it's worth saying that female athletes are, are about five to eight times greater risk than male athletes. Much higher, right? um, Yeah, their age, especially younger women. Um, and there are a lot of neuromuscular um, factors that play into that. There's some anatomic factors that play into that. So, you know, when we talk about ACL injuries, it's in general, I think Steve, you, you would agree, and, and you know, Jason, we all treat these. We see a higher, a much higher level of, of female athletes that have these injuries. For sure. Um, although we are talking about two male athletes today, it's kind of a springboard into the conversation. But you know, a lot of those factors have to do with um, some asymmetry in the way their their muscles fire. So women are generally more quad dominant than they are hamstring or hip dominant, and that kind of allows there to be a little bit of an excessive force on the shin bone, which puts a little bit of stress on the the ACL additional. Um, they have uh, a couple uh, bony factors around the knee that kind of put a little bit more pressure on the ACL. Uh, because of some of their hip weakness, their knee tends to dip into this, what we call valgus or knock knee position, and, and that puts the ACL at risk. And then there's a, a concept of this, uh, there's kind of a little bit of a slope to the, to the upper edge of the, uh, the, the shin, shin bone, bone that basically um, allows that bone or forces that bone to kind of slide forward on the, on the femur or the thigh bone and all those factors, all these things, you know, translate to increased stress on the ACL. So all these little incremental changes that certain people have result in, you know, force that basically can't be absorbed anymore. And it gets, uh, it gets translated into a tear. From an uh, on-field perspective, uh, we, we've all done our fair share. I know you guys both are, you know, team physicians for high school football. We've all been involved with the Arena League. How often do you perform your Lockman test and question whether or not the ACL is torn? I mean, are you pretty confident by that test alone? You know, frequently, yes. Mm -hmm. I think everybody has been tricked, yeah. right? Sometimes uh, some some uh, guys on the field or someone's on the field, players on the field, I should say, mm -hmm. and they're guarding mm -hmm. and you don't get as much translation as you think you're going to get. So typically when we do this, we basically stress the rope, uh, which is torn. And if the, if there's no excursion um, where there's not supposed to be, then the rope is probably intact. Mm -hmm. And if you stress the rope and the, the, the one bone slides relative to the other, then that's an indication that the rope is not intact, so the ACL is torn. And But every now and again, someone can really tighten up their leg or tighten up their knee and, and, and fool you. And sometimes there isn't that much motion. But yeah, no, typically you go out there, you kind of go through a whole series of stress tests on the knee, and then you stress the ACL frequently, most of the time, especially in that acute setting. You know, you could you could pick it out from the stands, right? The whole thing just slides. Yeah. You can really see you can really see the movement. You're pretty sure what the diagnosis is here. You just don't know if there are additional diagnoses and whatnot on top of it. But yeah, yeah, you go right that you go right out. You test it, and then when we see patients in the office afterwards, similarly, sometimes they're swollen, becomes a little bit harder to check and whatnot and test it. Mm -hmm. um, we try not to let on until you know for sure, but you, you can sometimes say, hey, listen, I'm a little worried about this. And you know, and then, then you really get your MRI and then that's that's how you tell for sure. That's your, your real definitive test. Yeah, you know, so I, I think the history is really important. When you see people Absolutely. in the office, 
Um, so they've actually done some studies on some factors that um, are suggestive that an ACL is torn. So in in the history, if if you have a history of a, a twisting or a buckling mechanism associated with a popping sensation, that's what I was going to um, ask. Yeah, an inability to continue to play, mm-hmm. yeah. and immediate, immediate and significant swelling. swelling mm-hmm. Then those three factors, if they're present in the history, you've got an eighty-five percent likelihood of having an ACL tear. And what is that popping? It's the actual ligament tear. Yeah. <laughs> it just makes an yeah, audible sound. It makes an audible yeah. sound. Yeah. People mm-hmm. feel it. Yeah. How often are you caught off guard by an MRI? Meaning an MRI came back and it was like, oh, it is torn. It surprises you mean it surprises us that it's yeah. torn? Mm-hmm. Pretty rarely. Pretty rarely, yeah. I'd say fifteen percent. I don't think it's extraordinarily rare, but it's a little more unusual. Like when you go through the questions, yeah. you know, and then it's, you know, you ask you, can you feel a shift? And you ask someone who hasn't felt their knee shift and they say Usually they they look at you kind of cross and like no they don't know what you're talking about and the guy that tears their ACL will frequently say you know like yeah they they know what you're talking yeah, about they yeah. know what you're saying feel it unstable yeah it feels unstable and then all those other factors when they're present and you do that exam most of the time you know but yeah sometimes you get caught off guard here's an interesting point to that questionnaire is that uh, Dario Sarge did continue to play yeah and ronald acuna jr did not right yeah right i mean we actually saw ronald laying on the ground he couldn't get to the ball the guy scores you know an infield of park home run. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, like we said dario's a work hard workhorse yeah. right? I mean, he, he got down there i think he played it's at least that. one series on defense um, yeah so i think that that probably draws some attention to the fact that you know not all acl tears are isolated mm-hmm. there's actually a, a high percentage of uh, additional injuries that can occur with, with ACL tears. So at the same time of an ACL, there's uh, a percentage of patients that tear their lateral meniscus. And, you know, that's the one on the outside, the, the outer edge of the knee. And that can give you further difficulty with getting back up and standing. So, you know, it's multi-ligament possible. Tears. Yeah, multi-ligament. There could be other ligaments that get injured. You have bone contusions. I mean, there's a lot of things that can happen with an ACL. It's not always isolated. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, theoretically, Sarge had maybe an isolated ACL tear or a single bundle tear or, you know, we don't really have, we're not just treating positions. We don't have the details on it, but you know, you could, you could argue that there's maybe some additional problems going on. And then you got the individual athlete factor. So each athlete is going to handle those injuries very, very differently. Some of it's personality, some of it's emotional, some of it's, you know, uh, physical, but there's a lot of factors that play into an athlete's perception of their injury and, and what they can or can't do. I always love asking this question. It's one of the things that uh, still intrigues me a bit is, you know, Dr. Frey, walk me through the MRI reading, um, what you see in the MRI at right. that point. The ACL is, resides basically in the center of the knee. And it's a rope that goes from the back of the thigh bone to the front of the top of the shin bone. So that because it does that, it basically resists translation or resists movement of the shin bone forward relative to the end of your thigh bone. And, and there's a rotational component. So there's two ropes that are in that, at the center of your knee there. One is your PCL, your posterior cruciate ligament, and the other is your ACL. And frequently you'll see this big, thick, dark line um, on the, you know, the, that particularly weighted image, which is your PCL, and it goes from more the front of the, shin, the thigh bone to the back of the shin bone. And then where you're supposed to see this other ligament, cruciates, like, right, cruciate ligaments across, um, where you're supposed to see this other uh, ligament, the ACL, it turned instead of being a fairly defined dark line, it winds up being this sort of amorphous gray kind of blurred moppy puff. Puff is a is a good way to describe it. 
And then in addition to that, there's a pretty characteristic bone bruising pattern. And we actually got into that in our last conversation, the last time Brad was here, because there are some similarities with hyperextension knee injuries. So the, the, the very typical bone bruising pattern is this, this pivot shift moment of the knee when, when the ACL tears, where, where it's, it's hard to describe um, verbally, but essentially there's a moment where the knee basically twists, the outside of the thigh bone rotates backwards, and the front edge of the outside of the thigh bone bangs into the back edge of the top of the shin bone and it then bounces right back. So you get this sort of almost subluxation event and you get this typical bone bruising pattern where you see a bone bruise on the front of the lateral femoral condyle, the end of the thigh bone, and you see a bone bruise on the back of the lateral tibial plateau, the, the back of the top of the shin bone. So once you see that constellation, yeah. like it's, it's, it's a... And those on. two parts of the bone should never be able to touch each other. No, 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 not so with that's an intact how you know, ACL. That's how you know that, you know, there, there are, when we take our boards uh, for sports medicine and orthopedic surgery, they, they'll show you just the bone bruise pattern and they'll ask you what's torn what, yeah. what, what's without showing you the ACL tear on an MRI. And you have to know that those two things should never touch. And if they do, that, that it's kind of classic for this twisting mechanism we call a pivot shift that usually you see on, an ACL tear. On x-ray even, there's something called a Sagoon fracture, lateral capsular sign. You see a little avulsion of bone that pulls off um, because there's so much stress with that twisting moment the capsule actually will evolve sometimes a little piece of bone. If you see that on x-ray, that's pathognomonic for typically ACL injury. Yeah. And just a reminder, Dr. Frey, this is a podcast, uh, not live TV, so no one right. can see the hand gestures <laughs> that you were just doing. I However, if any of I our links... <laughs> Every time I have a patient, I do the same motion. Yeah, I can't I explain did, it without I actually doing it. the exact same thing. However, if, if any of our listeners are curious what he was just motioning as, you can reach out to us on sportsmedontap at gmail.com, and we can perhaps send you a video yeah. of what Dr. Frey was just uh, describing yeah. there. Right. Perfect. Right. Um, but I think that kind of leads us up to kind of the surgery aspect, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I have a, I have a full beer here. Uh, I got a watermelon lime sour. I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Frey and Dr. Bernardini. The watermelon is dangerous. I was hoping it's so good. It goes down very I would, quickly. It's, I would be absolutely drink, phenomenal. Drink my yeah. stay in the car, Frank. So, yeah. 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 so maybe we can just get Steve to talk yeah. about it. But I mean, yeah. this is where things really get interesting, right? Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of different controversial topics, a lot of different, you know, methods, procedures. More than one crafting. way to skin a cat. Um, and that's why we obviously have two of the experts here with us. So, Dr. Bernardini, you want to start us off? All right. So we, we've confirmed surgery for both of these guys. Yeah, so let's assume that, you know, young, active. Go ahead. I was going to say, actually, we're jumping to the conclusion, confirmed surgery, but that's not actually a definite, True. right? Yeah, that's a great point. So we have uh, a, an amazing physical therapy department at Recon Sports, and, and I have... I've gotten into very deep conversations with some of our therapists about whether or not we have to do surgery. Mm -hmm. So, and this brings up a great point. Why do we have to do surgery? Well, you know, from a surgical perspective, we, we think of, you know, the, the options for being able to fix a problem. Mm -hmm. From a therapy perspective, we think of being able to prevent a problem or to be able to treat a problem without surgery. So. You know, they're different opposing kind of philosophies. So there are patients who, who we can teach to cope with an ACL tear. So coping involves learning uh, how to create new neuromuscular movement patterns that don't put stress on the ACL, so don't rely on its function. 
um, you know, maybe modifying our activity level. Um, in general, it's pretty well shown that young athletes Active, yeah. that have a desire to return to a pivoting sport are unable to cope with a torn ACL. And, and, and what will happen is they'll have recurrent events, subluxation events or instability events. Yeah, and each time they away. do, they're at risk for secondary injury, right? They're going to tear their meniscus, it's going to knock off a piece of garbage, they're going to do something else. So, so that that's one of the concerns yeah. where if you're gonna if you're gonna push it and you're gonna try to get back to sports, you're not gonna settle for okay, I, I'm okay if I just walk around and I'm okay if I just go for a jog, but anything more is a problem. If if someone's not going to settle for that, then typically most yeah. you know most often they're gonna wind up have, needing to go a surgical route. Yeah, and it's also been pretty well documented that you know the rate of progressive damage in an ACL deficient knee that hasn't been fixed surgically. Is, is much higher than a rate of a, of, of a fixed ACL. So you're more likely to develop arthritis, you're more likely to develop meniscus damage and cartilage damage. And it probably, you know, is important to mention that braces are not pre preventative. They don't make up for the ACL. Yeah, they don't make up for the ACL. A lot of people think, oh, I'll just get a brace, it'll hold my knee. It doesn't, it's helpful, it's, it, but it's certainly not a replacement. Yeah, it's, it's much better at preventing an MCL injury. Yeah. Um, not real great at preventing ACL injury. So I always tell patients, you know, even in a brace, you could, your knee could shift. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, that can potentially cause problems. So I'm very conservative when somebody tears their ACL, which is a little controversial in, in you know, with the therapist, but I, I recommend that they, you know, go on crutches prior to surgery because if you continue to you know walk on it it only takes one episode of your knee shifting mm -hmm. to cause a new problem that then may be something we also have to fix or something that doesn't heal very well i, I think that's super interesting right i think there's some support for that uh more some of the more recent literature especially with with kids with acl injuries so Right. It's kids that are not skeletally mature, the growth plates are still open. That always becomes controversial fixing their ACL because we have to cross their growth plate in order to fix it. So if they're, you know, on the verge of their growth plate closing, typically you can get away with the soft tissue graft. But if, if, if they're a little younger than that, then that, that's a real challenge. You don't want to create a, um, a bony bar or a hinge or an issue within that growth plate that's going to create a growth disturbance later on. The approach for a while was to try to slow that kid down, not have them not to do a lot, not let them do as many activities, wait until their growth plates are closing, then fix it then. And there's a very high rate of secondary injury. Yeah, it's like 25% yeah. injury in within three months if, right. you, if you don't fix it. So 25% rate of additional bad stuff happening within the knee if you don't fix an ACL within three months of the injury. Yeah. So that's scary, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, and that, that, it goes to support your argument. You know, I don't think it's it's standard. It's not standard. It's to, very, to, to, it's to controversial to get for people sure. Off it, but, I'm super conservative. But it does, yeah, and support your argument. Yeah, my philosophy is that's what I would do for my kid. Yeah. And you know, that's so that's what I'm gonna do for your kid. Yeah. But so let's let's kind of, we'll get past the, let's assume that we're gonna, we decide that we have, a, a, you know, an ACL injury and we're an gonna athlete, fix it. we're gonna fix it. Yeah. So then we have a lot of things to think about. Uh, how are we going to fix it? When are we going to fix it? What are we going to fix it with? Yeah. What graph type? What yeah. fixation? What so, so I, I, you know, the first question that I would kind of address would be, uh, wh when are we going to fix it? And yeah. I would say, um, you know, there are studies that show that there should be a decrease in the amount of swelling the knee has. Yeah. And there should be a, a pretty close to full motion in the knee. So. 
unfortunately, a lot of these athletes go to an urgent care center or an ER where they maybe don't have sports medicine specialists and they put them in an immobilizer. Yeah. And it may be a week or two before they get to see us. Unfortunately. And, and then they come to a stiff. That's the absolute wrong thing to do. We actually want to get them moving to decrease the stiffness because the stiffness is a, it basically prevents us from being able to do the surgery without having to risk post-operative stiffness. So we don't want to have a risk of surgery causing additional stiffness. And if people go in stiff, they come out stiff. Yeah. And this is the importance of, you know, what physical therapist and athletic trainer prehab. Right. Like prehab. We're, we're, we need to do X amount of weeks before surgery. Yeah. Three right? times. I, yeah. And I think most people will think, all right, no, I got to strengthen my thigh and I got to strengthen my quads before the surgery. But that's not and it. yeah, that doesn't hurt you. But really, to be honest with you, the, 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 the real role of physical therapy before the surgery is range of motion. Get your range of motion back. Yeah. Your best predictor of range of motion after the surgery is your range of motion before the surgery. So if you go in stiff, you have a higher chance of yeah. coming out. Yeah. yeah. So those are, those are important. So it's not an emergency. Mm -hmm. So we do want to, we do have some criteria that we want to meet before we do decide to do it. And then, um, and then the discussion is, you know, is it isolated or combined? Let's assume it's isolated to make it simple for that. For sure. Cause that's have. a whole nother, that's a whole nother animal. And, and then what are we going to fix it with? And so maybe Steve, you could talk about like what we would fix it with, right. with, you know, an under 25 patient versus yeah. over 25. Cause there's, that's kind of an important yeah. number. So I, I typically use 30 and not 25. So patient under the age of 30, I will typically almost always use autograft. So their own tissue. And there's a few different versions of that. I think the three most common being, um, patella tendon autograft hamstring autograft or quad tendon autograft. What is an autograft, doctor? So that's using your own tissue and then putting your own tissue back in. And uh, over the for me, and, and uh, over the age of 40, frequently, not every time, uh, I, I respect patients' requests as well, but usually I'll use an allograft. And there are advantages, allograft is using the cadaver tissue. Honestly, donate from a dead guy is what it comes down to. And um, there are definitely advantages and disadvantage to each way of doing it. Um, the big advantage being, in, in short, because I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but the big advantage in the younger patient population is one, low rate of retear if they use their own tissue into really 0% disease transmission, you're using your own tissue. And in, with an allograft, um, there, it tends to be you get a very predictable graft, you're ordering it, right? You pull it off, you pull it out of a freezer. You, you know exactly what size the graft is going to be. So you put in a nice big graft. And because that patient's own tissue is a little bit older, it may not be as stout or as sturdy. So it's nice to be able to order a nice big thick graft. Um, and there's also, recovery is a little bit quicker. There's a little, and early on especially, there's a little less surgery at the front end of it because you don't have to harvest the graft. So if you're just taking it out of the freezer and putting it in, um, it, it makes the, the, the post-op recovery, especially early on, a little bit easier. On the other end of that, it, it also, recovery tends to be a little bit longer. Now, typically you have a guy who's you know 45 years old, he's not rushing to get back to his next season of the sport. So you're not as worried about getting him back as quickly as you can. You just wanna make the recovery easier and give him a good outcome. I think it's worth mentioning that, you know one of the reasons that we think that tissue from the patient does better is that that tissue is, is native, it's healthy. Yeah. And when you get a cadaver graft or a donor graft, that tissue has to be processed. So some of the ways that they process and prepare that graft is they actually irradiate it. They, they try to kill any pathogens or disease 
by by subjecting it to radiation and that radiation weakens, a bit. weakens the graft a little bit so you're putting in tissue that potentially is a little bit weak and that's one of the things that we think may contribute to a loosening rate or a re-rupture rate that's a little bit higher than if you young patient it from its from from the actual own own patient's tissue the other risk factors that have been shown to be correlated with increased re-injury rate is younger age and higher activity level so the younger sure. the athlete is and the higher their activity level is, the more likely they are to re-injure. And we'll talk about re-injury, I think, after we talk about the, the rest of the surgical options. I would have to imagine when you have these patients in the exam room, uh, there, there must be a lengthy discussion about which type of graft. Um, you know, you probably make your recommendations based on, you know, the research. But I'm assuming that again, goes on a long discussion yeah. about why why you're recommending yeah. the auto versus the allo or things yeah, like yeah. that. You know, and, and, you know, I think we generally recommend, you know, autographed in younger patients because of some studies that show the increased rate of loosening with using cadaver tissue in young patients. So 25, 30 in yeah. that ballpark. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that 30 to 40 range, uh, I'll typically base it on how active a person is. And, 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 and I uh, honestly, I, you know, I let them, I have a lot of input in, in on it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And, and so that's, that's a, a big part of the conversation. Some people come in with a predisposition about what they want, what they don't want. Right. And then our job is to try to educate them as to the risks and benefits. I think it's, it's uh, important to note that um, probably the two most common grafts are the patella tendon graft and the hamstring graft. There's been uh, plenty of studies that show that they have very comparable outcomes with regard to return to play and, and you know, functional outcomes. There are some subtle differences between the grafts. You know, I think that probably the, Couple biggest differences being, you know, uh, patella tendon grafts take little chunks of bone from the kneecap yep. and the shin, and as a result, they can leave you a little bit of kneecap, chronic like kneeling pain, kneecap Continuous pain, pain for the rest a of your bit life. Of maybe increased risk of osteoarthritis in the kneecap, but they're really good, strong grafts. Historically, that's what's been used for high-level elite athletes. Right, and, and part of that is also, especially for football players, right? Because you know, if you have this college player who has a potential to make the NFL. And he goes to the to the combine. They they, they take that into account. And if you've had an ACL um, with uh, oh, yeah. the bone patella bone, that's considered better yeah. within the minds of generally the older guys. Yeah, that that's are, old that school. Grading them. Yeah, I know. That's old I know. For sure. I, I agree with you. Yeah. yeah, but 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 that's a factor to consider. Yeah, right? it's real. Yeah. Sure. So moving along in the process, we we've you've had the discussion. You decided on what type of graph you're in the operating room now. What do you see it, once you're inside the knee? What happens with that torn tendon? Is that just completely removed and discarded? Yeah. So controversy number next. Yeah. <laughs> right. So yeah. Talk about that a little bit. Repair versus uh, yeah. reconstruction. So repair. So it, traditionally, historically, we reconstruct the ligament. So we have to recreate mm -hmm. the, the damaged tissue because the old one theoretically stretched out before it tore. So if you just sew it back together, you're sewing some loose structure back right. together and the knee's still going to be loose. So that's why we talk about using grafts. Well, there are some people now that are, are finding What's very- old is new again. They're trying yeah, it again. Very specific subset of patients that have a pure tear off of, they're not, it's not in the middle part of the ligament. It's in the, it's at the edge against where the bone is. Yeah. And it off pops the femur. Off, off the femur, off the thigh bone. And theoretically you can repair that instead of reconstructing. So, so you, you, put, you can ahead, use sorry. that tissue. No, you can use that tissue. You can put it back together and you've got to talk about it. Yeah, so you put some stitches into the, the little stump of ACL that's still attached to the tibia. 
and, uh, to the shin bone, and you put a couple drill holes, or you put a drill hole into the into the femur, and then um, and, you know with the the advance in technology, we can really pass those stitches arthroscopically with certain instruments, and then you can actually augment that repair with something called an internal brace, where it's a very strong tape type suture that that goes into the repair, and it, the idea is that the internal brace, that suture, does the majority of the of the work until that tissue, that graft has time to heal back down to bone. You know, they, they used to do it in the past. They tried repairs versus reconstructions and the retear rate was exceedingly high. It didn't work. So then we've gone and they, they, they've tried synthetics in the yeah, past. Yeah, they tried Gore-Tex. Gore-Tex, They yeah. tried silk. I was at my, my residency, they were, doing, they were doing work with like silk spiders. Right. To spin silk to try to reconstruct ligaments. It's really, Crazy. silk's super strong. Right. But, you know, nothing's done a job like evolution right. and, and and you know ligaments are amazing structures and yeah. um you know collagen is amazing structure and so we haven't found a synthetic that's been able to function right so for the last 20 years we switch over to reconstructions um I, when, when i do my reconstructions i typically like to use quad tendon uh, autograft which is i think is probably one of the newer trending ways but it's, it's been around a long time yeah, i think yeah. it's just you know what we've technology has gotten better to it. fix it you know, and it's a great right. it's a great graft. I don't think we had good ability to fix it. So I think the fixation industry has helped us. Uh, yeah, yeah, industry yeah. has helped us to develop ways to fix Include it. So that. I, yeah, and it gives you you know nice thick graft every single time, which which is one of the things I like about it. Yeah. But nonetheless, so so you know we went to reconstruction, right? You can't repair the you can't repair the tendon. So instead, you take a tendon from somewhere else, slide it in where the old tendon used to be. Let that heal in, and really, essentially, that acts as a scaffold for your own tissue to eventually grow into it. Which is why the recovery tends to be so long, this is because that tendon is a scaffold and eventually becomes your ligament. Um, uh, and now, again, like I said, what's old is new. New again, we've gone back to trying to do some of these repairs, um, or some people have gone back to trying to do some of these repairs where there's a certain type of tear, just like 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 Brad had said tears directly off the of, of the femur you put in the you put in the internal brace you do the suture repair of that ligament back to bone the internal brace protects it you can there are theory, people are trying to you know wrap the tendon or wrap the ligament with a with, a, with another graft inject stem cells do all these other different things to try to enhance healing um, I think the early results on this though at least in my opinion, not so hot not so hot right yeah the big advantage there is that theoretically you get back much, much more quickly. So, so maybe instead of missing six months or nine months or a year of time, you miss three months or six months of time. Mm. Um, however, with the retail rate being what it appears to be, it's probably not the best. What answer. is the retail rate for that? So I think that the low estimates are 25 to 30%. Yeah, that's a big number, yeah. way bigger than it should be. Yeah. Um, I think it's great that people are trying to push the envelope of you know academia and learning different things, but I personally, you know, not willing to take that risk. I have not attempted Me repairs neither. and uh, I, I don't see myself attempting repairs because, you know, the, the mechanism of injury suggests that that tissue is damaged right. and to try to repair it back right. doesn't just just doesn't seem to make theoretical sense. Hey, to me. I would just like to, for it to bear out in the literature, right? Yeah. Like if you if, if there are if you can get back more quickly, I, I actually don't think it's very technically demanding to do. I don't think it's the hardest thing in the world, but no, I just don't want to put someone through that and put a, them at a high risk of retiring. That's a whole nother, and we'll get to that, I think, in a little bit, but the whole that, that's a whole nother discussion about how quickly we should be getting people back because 
you know, 10 years ago, the big thing was how quickly could you get people back? And it almost became, I don't want to say a marketing tool, but it almost became a little bit of a sales point. Right. you know, people that were kind of getting multiple opinions about ACLs, they would look for the guy who, or girl who yeah. told them that they were going to be able to get back in six months versus nine months. Even though it might not have been in their best interest. Yeah. And the reality is that biology is biology and it takes time for these ligaments to heal and remodel and re, and re kind of organize. Adrian, Adrian Peterson hosed this all, right? You saw this guy out yeah. there just killing it. Yeah. Uh, whatever it was, four months, six yeah. months, and, and then everybody else figured they can do it. And like, yeah, no, no. <laughs> not everyone. Not yeah. Everyone. So I think that's really important because there's a lot of good studies now that are suggesting that you may have a significantly better chance of not re-tearing if you wait two years before you return. That's a long time. And that's time. a big sell to people. Oh, yeah. You know, when you have a, a high school junior that's looking at a scholarship for college, you know, sports, and you try to tell them you're out for two years, that's a no-no. Oh, yeah. You know, they're going to want to they're going to want to find somebody that tells them the, the answer they want to well, hear. And but, standardly, I don't think that's the accepted return rate. No, right? it's yeah, absolutely not. Yeah, it's yeah. absolutely not. But it's, there is some basic science that's showing that. I think yeah. most of us would probably say nine months. That's I think that's the standard answer. Nine you know, months. return to play. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about pivoting, twisting sports. You know, if you're an inline athlete, which which means to me running, yeah. um, you know, Maybe that, six. That, you're doing that early. Yeah. You're doing that much earlier and because that doesn't put a lot of stress on the graft. That sounds to me like just the ever, you know, the ongoing quality versus quantity. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I, you know, as a former college athlete, right, we're, we're all former athletes. Um, I, I think about, you know, every athlete having their last game and you, you still need that knee. It's got to right. last you for the rest of your days. Heck and yeah. so let's think about the long-term recovery and not just getting back to that next season. You know, it's super common for parents and families to come in and say, well, what, can, when, what season are they getting back at? And that's their primary question. Who said it when the reality picture. is that shouldn't be their primary question. Their, sh- their primary question should be, how can I get this to heal the best way that gives this person, not just athlete, the best chance of having a good functional knee for the rest of their life? Right. And, and the long-term, you know, recovery may be a better answer for that goal. If your true goal is to return to sports as quickly as possible, then I, I you know, then you may be compromising a longer-term, right? you know, outcome, it, which is, you know, a little bit, it's not what people want to hear, but it's unfortunately, I think, probably something we need to think about. I think the uh, three of us talked about, uh, you know, we easily could have had a physical therapist on with us tonight. And then, you know, the reality was, is that um, we could probably have multiple episodes down the road. And talking. I'm sure we will. And we will. And, and, and yeah. I think and, prob- and we should. Yeah. Sure. I think it would be great to have a physical therapist on at some point. And, yeah. you know, somebody that could talk about the day to day recovery, uh, dealing with you yeah. know, a patient. But. You know, why don't we talk about the the recovery process on a little bit of a broader scope, you know, in terms of, you know, what the physicians look for week to week, month to month. Fun stuff. No, no. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, get into it. So, you know, the, the surgery itself uh, is same day surgery, generally done in about an hour. Um, patients go home that day. Um, and my, you know, protocol is everybody's got a little bit of a different protocol. But sure. I start I start rehab pretty quickly. I start within about a week. Um, you know, the, the initial goal is to obviously get through the, those first few days where you're a bit sore, probably got some post-operative swelling. You know, there's no re- real reason to stress the body at that point. Um, but we want to start getting people moving right away. As Steve mentioned earlier, motion is really critical to the overall outcome of these surgeries. So we want to get people moving early so that they don't start to develop scar tissue that limits their motion. Um, so I get people going pretty early. I 
Um, you see them back in about seven to 10 days, get stitches out, make sure there's no signs of infection, which is one of the risks of surgery. Anytime you cut sure. the skin, there's a risk of that. It's, you know, overall, if you look at all comers, different studies, it's about 1% or just under 1% risk of infection. There's slightly different numbers with different graph choices, but they're not, you know, tremendously variable. So five, first five, seven days, that's our biggest concern. Um, risk of infection, there is a risk of blood clots with, you know, certain surgeries that, you know, uh, cause tissue damage, maybe, uh, you know, blood flow gets a little sluggish. So those are other things that we look for and talk Checking about. on that yeah. first visit. So yeah. those first, those first, you know, that first seven to 10 days is pretty critical to, you know, get through the, just the post-operative information phase and post-operative risk. And frequently it's pretty uncomfortable. Yeah. Those first, yeah. That's the first week. So, and then, you know, we start getting into therapy. Therapy has been shown to help decrease a lot of that pain, a lot of that swelling, gets people moving again. There are some studies that show that certain types of graphs, if you start weight bearing early, they actually have decreased pain and they start, you know, improving their, their muscular function. Um, so those are all important things. We know that the grafts take about, I'm going to say about, cause there's different studies that show different numbers, yeah. but about three months to kind of bond into the bone tunnels that we put them in. And then the graft goes through what we call a remodeling process. So the remodeling process basically starts to change the collagen structure of the graft. So a lot of these grafts that we use are tendon grafts. Tendons attach muscles to bones and ligaments attach bones to bones. So they have different collagen structures and properties. And so once the graft heals into the bone, it starts to realize, hey, we're not a tendon anymore. We need to start acting different. We need to change our, our structure. And it goes through a, a remodeling or a ligamentization yeah. phase. And there's been some studies that show that that's also a period of time where you're at risk for the graft loosening. So we, we actually protect these athletes till probably four and a half-ish months, or at least I do, five yeah. months. Yeah. Um, some studies show that that may even, that process may even take a little bit longer, but in general, I'd say that's kind of the trend. I mean, would you agree with that? I do, I yeah. do. And I feel like I'm, I frequently start pulling the reins somewhere between two months and three months where people start feeling pretty good. Mm -hmm. They think they could do more and you're, Hey, no, you no, say no, no. Yeah, you, you gotta, gotta, say gotta no. slow down. This yeah. is really the critical period where things yeah. can go wrong. Yeah, I agree, totally. And then, you know, after that remodeling phase has occurred, then we start to think about the functional phase. And the functional phase is really critical. I would say historically, that's where we in medicine have lost control of, of our patients. Uh, very often, uh, physical therapy benefits are expired so that, you know, insurance companies will say, oh, you've done three, four months of therapy. We're not going to pay for it anymore. You know, good luck. You're on your own. Um, we haven't had great options for treatment until the energy <laughs> Set, lab. Do it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So we actually, this was one of the big kind of driving forces behind the energy lab, which is, you know, a medically integrated sports performance center that we have here in a Pittman location and it's it's immediately adjacent to our physical therapy department and so what that really was meant to be was to be a continuation of therapy so after therapy is completed we know those athletes still need functional strength training but they need some guidance they need some medical integration they need some understanding of how these needs still need to be treated because they're still recovering and so we've kind of got into this situation where we like to transition into the energy lab. You know, we first kind of go to this, what we call the bridge program, which is kind of um, 
you know, Jason's baby. And, and that's where we, we have kind of a, a you know, a, a blending of the medical and the performance sides of recovery. And then after they get through the bridge program, then they'll transition over to a pure performance, uh, speed and agility, strength and conditioning program with our, our um, you know, director of uh, human performance. So it's, it's, it's been a, a godsend, I think, because we've been able to kind of um, control that recovery all the way up to the point where we know, you know, nine months-ish, where we're gonna let those athletes get back. Historically, prior to the Energy Lab, I would lose my patients at about three months, four months. They'd end up going to train with somebody maybe I didn't know, right. um, maybe didn't understand ACL injury prevention, didn't understand the anatomy, physiology, didn't understand the surgery. And, and that I think has been the detrimental thing to a lot of athletes. And so. So, so scary numbers, right? Um, you know, numbers for retear rates um, after you've done an ACL reconstruction in an eight, um, they're, they're all over the map, to be honest with you. It's been so studied. And there's so many variables, but I think a, a fairly reasonable number is somewhere in the vicinity of, I hate to say, but maybe upwards of 10% in the, in the, yeah. in the, in the knee that's been, been torn. A pretty shocking number is that the number of tears in patients who have previously torn an ACL in one knee, the percentage of tears in the other knee is also around 10%. There's a predisposition there, right? That person who tore their tore the one tore the ACL on one knee is a little bit at risk. There's a deficit. A There's lot of risk. A lot of yeah, risk. A lot yeah, of, and that's why the way a lot of those factors that we talked about right. are still in that patient. That fact, those factors haven't changed, and, right. that, and that's where the energy lab comes in. Right, right. Not only in, in in the recovery part of it, but you know, more importantly for us, I mean, a big part of of what we discussed about the energy lab was it's not just for patients that have been. Mm-hmm. damaged yeah, but and, and have had surgery, head that it's, off. It's, it, but it's a place where you can actually go to prevent it. Yeah. So we know that there's actually a lot of science coming out now about injury prevention programs for ACL injuries. And, you know, initially they were called jump training programs. Yeah, yeah way back. Um, and now they're when called ACL injury prevention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. same yeah. thing. You know, injury prevention programs. And there's studies now that are coming out showing that you can decrease the rate of ACL injuries up to about 53%. That's huge. It's a huge number. Right. So, and you know, especially in young female athletes, which is where the highest risk population is. Right. And, and it, it really incorporates, you know, strength, uh, balance, yeah. plyometrics, agility, uh, mobility, all yeah. these things that we know. And there's certain muscles that we know will help kind of counteract the, some of these risk, you know, um, neuromuscular deficits that we talked about in the beginning of the podcast. Try to with, correct them. Yeah, before try to correct them. Before it's an issue, exactly, and and it's been shown to work, yeah. and it's been shown to have a long-lasting effect as long as that athlete learns what they need to learn during those sessions. So that's why you know we think that the Energy Lab is so important yeah. to to injury prevention and, and ACL uh, prevention. And Not it's just, crazy. Yeah. Look, look at any high school, uh, you know, uh, girls lacrosse team or high school field hockey team, and and it's like, yeah, you know. Four of the or five of the athletes have all torn their ACLs yeah. already, and two of them had retears. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's, right. the, the numbers are almost shocking. So yeah, times. some of that happens because people don't believe us when we say it takes a long time to heal and recover right. and remodel right. And, right. and get your functional strength. And some of it um, it happens because there's neuromuscular factors that right. weren't addressed or weren't fixed. I, I think it's probably worth us discussing expectations for a return to play. For sure. There's historically a lot of the return to play 
studies were done in the NFL. And, you know, I would say prior to probably the last two years, most of those numbers suggested that about 25% of athletes didn't return to their Same prior level. level of function. So that means if you were, you know, a, a, a you know, high level D1, you know, athlete, you're 25% of those athletes are not going to get back to that level. Um, 75% will, which is great. Some of the newer studies have started to kind of break out athletes into different levels of participation. So the, the, the most recent numbers that, that at least I use and I go by based on some good science show that about 55% of elite athletes, which is D1, college, and pro athletes, are not going to be able to return to their prior level of function. 55%. It's a huge number. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and it stinks if you're mm -hmm. one of those athletes. The lower level of, of athletic participation, the lower level of competitive athletics you get into, the better your options, you know, Which for makes sense, play. Right. right? Yeah, you're not less margin of an error. Yeah. So, you know, I think 25 is a fair number for most comers. If you're just doing recreational or just you're just doing looking to exercise for, you know, you know, fitness, you've got a pretty good chance to be able to return to, especially inline activities, biking, running, swimming. You know, lower impact is better than higher impact. But if you're looking at playing cutting, pivoting, twisting sports, the number for return to play is um, probably somewhere between 25 to 55, depending on, you know, your, your level. And your your re-injury risk, we talked about earlier, is, is worse the higher level of function that you want to get back to and the younger you are when you tear. Not great, number, not great numbers, honestly. Yeah. So interesting, you know. And that's with, just to mention, that's with a successful surgery. So when we examine that patient, they have a successful surgery. That doesn't right. mean they retour. Right. That means they had a good surgery, they healed well, they rehabbed well, and they can't get back to that level of play. And some of it's psychological. There some is a component without definitely, question. Definitely a component of that. So we actually have- They go through so much to get yeah. back. People are afraid to, to go Yeah, they're to afraid, again. they're apprehensive. Yeah. They, don't get, yeah. they, don't, they don't just let it ride after that. And you can't, unfortunately, in high level sports, you can't be apprehensive. You gotta let it go. We, we could talk about this stuff for three days. Yeah. I, I, wanna, I wanna comment. Um, the last time you were on the show. Uh-oh. No, 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 not bad at all. Not bad at all, right? Last time we were on the show, uh, I went off on, on this whole thing on what a great time in sports it was. Yeah, right? Like yeah. all this great things, draft, NFL draft was right around the corner. We're heading towards the playoffs, all this stuff that's going on. And I joked about the, the, the antithesis of that point being the right now yeah the major major league baseball uh, all-star break yeah at least at least this year there's uh the nba is in the finals which which doesn't typically happen but as luck would have it here you are again here i am the press the top and the, and the bottom <laughs> thank you i don't know if that's good or bad in my two years uh now <laughs> at the energy lab working with the bridge program um you know i it's kind of floored me a bit the the differences we've seen how patients are discharged from PT because X number of visits have been met or yeah. uh, and I don't want to make this about insurance companies but perhaps the insurance company has deemed well they're they've can return to normal activities well, right insurance Which, company's goal is to allow right. people to get back to normal activities of right. daily living so, so climbing stairs yeah, you know athletes don't right. fit into don't that care. to that formula for that so i would love to know your thoughts on you know what things like the bridge program will do for those numbers um if if we're able to send more people into a structured rehabilitation program following physical therapy i mean i would assume those numbers are going to go go down 
re-injury rates? Yeah. Well, if look, you would yeah. hope so. Yeah. So if you if you look at the, I think our best comparison is the the injury prevention programs that mm -hmm. we discussed with yeah. regard to pre, yeah. you know, pre pre injury rates. Mm -hmm. There's really no reason to believe that those numbers shouldn't be similar. Yeah. Theoretically, right? Because right? right. theoretical, know, theoretical, but theoretical. Right. There's no but reason if, to believe. If we, if we, and and maybe this is a good reason to do a study. But yeah. you know, theoretically, if you look at the numbers of recurrent ACL tears in the the operated knee and the non-operated knee, they're only about. 1% different, maybe, maybe the same. Yeah. Close. Very similar. So if you assume that your risk is the same, then it probably stands to, you know, be that that injury prevention data probably translates to post-operative. Mm -hmm. So I'm, we're looking at 50%, in my opinion, we're looking at a 50% reduction in re-injury. Yeah. If, if you if you extrapolate a, the data. Yeah, if you extrapolate the data. And again, Somebody out there is shaking their head and saying Bernardini doesn't know what he's talking about because the study hasn't been done yet. Right. But that's reality. The study hasn't been done yet. It's true. So let's work on it. Call in all interns. Yeah, do it. Well, guys, I mean, I think we, you know, we have a critical topic, you know, that we were discussing. So today we were able to cover all the anatomy, physiology of the ACL, how it occurs, how the surgery goes. Um, but I think this kind of brings us to a point where, you know, down the road, we bring on Dr. Bernardini again and perhaps a physical therapist or two from the energy lab. And we really get into the nitty gritty of the rehab. Aspect. We might have yeah. to break up a fight mid, mid, yeah, mid show. Yeah, that would be interesting. We might not have to drink on that and show. I, and, I, <laughs> and I think this will probably be a two or three part episode because there's a lot to cover on the rehab aspect. There's a ton to cover. Yeah. yeah. And rehab, you know, and I, I'll tell you exactly what I tell patients that I think the rehab is probably as if not more important than the surgery yeah. and, and i truly believe that and you know i'm sure the therapists will love to hear that and i think they should because they you know and we luckily have unbelievable therapists mm -hmm. um you know at, at our at our two locations that we have you know our own therapy and that's um, one of the best parts of our setup is that we, absolutely we really I, you know it's so nice to be able to walk across the hall and right. say hey how do you think this guy or girl's doing what does their rehab look like what are you concerned about and we we collaborate all the time and that's I, I don't think a day goes by where i don't speak with one of the therapists about you know a i couple agree of patients. Yeah. yeah i agree and not just that but then you get to, you know you have jason at the bridge side for sure and in the recovery room which is yeah. our kind of athletic you know training you know boutique athletic training room and then the um you know and then mike vetus who's our head of human performance and you know strength and conditioning in the energy lab i mean we all sit around and and talk about patients and we share these different backgrounds that we come from and, and kind of enhance the outcomes because we share knowledge and we share experience. And, you know, I, I, again, that's why we built it. I mean, that's that's really the, the benefit of what we're doing here. So. And if, if you listen back to our, any of our other episodes, you'll hear other guests saying, you know, people that, have, you know, we've all worked different places at one point and that type of conversation doesn't happen anywhere else. No, it's really unique. Yeah. And, it, and, and it's great to be part of. Um, it should happen in other places. And uh, I think it, it only serves to enhance the outcome for patients. And I can tell you just from, from what I, the feedback that I get from patients, they love it. I mean, they, you know, yeah. kids love it. They, you know, it's, therapy is an important environment. I remember as a, you know, a college athlete having to go do some therapy. And, you know, I went to kind of generic physical therapy mm -hmm. place. And, you know, and I had, you know, one guy to the side of me that had back pain and another lady to the other side of me that had a hip replacement. We, and, we get those complaints a yeah, lot, Yeah, right? and, you know, that's not where an athlete wants to be. An athlete wants to be in a place where they know they're going to get back to a high level of function because they're surrounded by people who are equally driven 
to kind of reach that goal. And that's that's really the environment I think we've created there. And, so. and they want to be pushed by someone who's going to push them at that level. Appropriate pushing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. Well, I think this sets up for a great episode down the road to talk about the rehab. Docs versus therapists. I think so. Case yeah. match. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Well, that's going to about wrap things up for this evening. We're going to go ahead and close out our tab. Before we do, we want to go ahead and thank our sponsors. Uh, obviously, with Dr. Bernardini sitting here, let's start with the Energy Lab, South Jersey's premier sports performance destination, reconstructive orthopedics, uh, with our focused on you approach, covering all of your orthopedic needs. Timber Reel Productions, Joe Warner, our on-site producer, Kyle Miller, our editor. Uh, without them, our episodes would sound nothing like they do. Uh, Neck of the Woods, of course, for hosting us each and every week and Total Turf Experience. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll catch you guys later. Dr. Bernardini, thanks again. Thanks for being on, buddy. Thank you. Have a great night, everyone.